For some of you, it's your first time. For others, it is not. But for today, I would like to welcome you all to Epic Realms. Heroes and villains, welcome to Epic Realms. While we don't have our normal live stream episode posted today on the podcast, I do want to let you know that we love you all and we thank you for joining us for this episode. This is going to be a throwback, a special throwback episode to way back when, when I worked on the Side Project podcast. I did a little interview with the one and only author, Dave Gross. He's done so many books, so many novellas, novels, all kinds of things. So I want you to listen in and enjoy this old episode. You're going to see a lot of the things that I did back then and a lot of the learning that I've done since then and how much I've improved. But it's still a great episode and a lot of fun. So stick around and enjoy this episode interviewing Dave Gross. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Side Project Podcast. Coming back to you, we've got a very special guest for you. He is our next and probably the most important Pathfinder's Tales author that I could probably try and muster up because he is not only the first Pathfinder's Tales, but I want to say that you have the most of them. Is that correct, Dave? That's true for now, for but now. somebody might catch up. Oh, well, are you planning on putting out any, or is that kind of on the sidelines? I saw you were doing something with the star, with the new system. Uh, No, no, I'm not uh, doing anything with Starfinder. Oh, man, then people... I don't know where you would have heard that. Damn it, internet. (laughs) (laughs) I always thought you could trust everything that was on the internet. Well, I suppose it's all true somewhere, Somewhere. in some dimension. Yeah, I don't know. I thought it was on the Paizo site, but maybe that was one of the other authors. Maybe you were looking at two articles side by side and got the That is up. very possible. I wouldn't be surprised. Because I think they announced something with the uh, adventure card game at around the same time they were talking about Starfinder. Oh. And they are using some of my characters in the uh, adventure card game again. Ooh. Wait, wait. Okay. So I didn't see this coming at all. So we, we, we're <laughs> still doing Rise of the Rune Lords, but we love the card game. And I always thought to myself it would be really cool if they took some of the characters from some of the novels and put them in there. So can you can you squeak out some some details as to what characters you might? I could, I could tell you what little I know. Okay. Um, uh, We've had Mike Salinger on the show, so, so yes, we're, we're, I'm right. sure he's cool with that. <laughs> well, first I'll tell you the thing that everybody already knows okay. if they've been looking for it, and that is in the Wrath of the Righteous campaign. Yep. If you buy the little campaigns that go along with the card game. Yep. I think in the third or fourth installment, you can get missions from Varian the Radovan. Oh, nice. And while I've only got a PDF, I haven't seen whether they're actually cards. There are cards in that document of Radovan and the Countess cohorts. And I think some of the other characters like Captain O'Parl and uh, 
Alice Tonbars and her Eidolon. I think they all appear in some in some manner in that set. And then what Mike recently announced was some uh, some Pathfinder Tales cards, and I'm not sure exactly how that set is going to appear. Okay. I just know that it's based on Pathfinder Tales, and that you'll actually be able to play Radovan or the Count, nice. and perhaps some other characters that I'm not going to mention yet because I, I, I'm not sure who wants yeah 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 who wants that yeah. out there. Well, I might have to send an email to Chris and Jackson and be like, "Hey, buddy, <laughs> you got any scoops?" Um, when we're talking about Radovan and the Count, well, before we do that, uh, other books bef- before Pathfinder Tales, like you had some other workings with uh, working in the Forgotten Realms, and you did something that I've never heard of called Iron Kingdoms. Am I correct? Yes. My first full-length novel was Black Wolf for the Forgotten Realms. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> There's a very long story that we probably don't have time for. <laughs> All the time in the world. How I ended but... up there. <laughs> but... Uh, I did a few Forgotten Realms novels, and before that I had done stories and a short novel and novellas. Okay. But the Iron Kingdoms work that you're thinking about is just a couple of years ago. Um, I wrote two short novels. I think one is a novella and the other is a short novel. Okay. For The Iron Kingdoms is a setting that includes War Machine and Hordes, which are um, tactical battle games. So kind of like, sort of like, like Warhammer and stuff? Yes, a smaller scale, more American sensibility, okay. Warhammer. And uh, with a bit more of a steampunk attitude about it. Steampunk's the wrong word for it, but it's got a, 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 a gear punk attitude to it. It's a really wonderful setting. And I got to write a novella concerning a band of mercenaries called uh, the, I want to say the Devil Dogs, but now that I say that out loud, it seems like I'm getting it a little wrong. But uh, you have to the ask Devil the Dogs at that <laughs> yeah, or I'll have to Google there myself. And uh, the other one was on a new faction that they had released just that year called the Convergence, fighting the uh, the, the, the the standard heroes of the setting, the the Signar. Okay, I like the sound of that. What was the uh, like whereabouts in time frame was like Black Wolf and Lord of Stormweather? Was that near the end? Of, I need mean, like during three five or before that or after that? That was. Before three, okay. and it was, I think it was published in the year 2000, All right. was Black Wolf. Okay. I, uh, I don't, I'm ashamed to say I don't read as often as I would have liked to, especially when I was younger. I had this whole, I'm a kid, teachers tell me to read these books, and because they tell me to read them, what do I they can't know? do it. I refuse. And that kind of put me in the notion of like, eh, it gave me a bad, I forced myself to have a bad taste about books. Except for like a small handful, like the Ursula Le Guin Earthsea series, which is always going to be my my door to the fantasy realm of novels. Those are wonderful. And you know, I, I read some of the Forgotten Realms, but nothing ever really stuck out. Like I love I love the realms, I love the characters in it, I love the world, I love the role playing system of it. But I was I always had a hard time getting into some of the novels just because a I had the hard time just with novels in general and most of the ones people finally convinced me to read I was only kind of a fan of right um, well the good thing and the bad thing about the Forgotten Realms novels is that there's so many and of that them. really and is the one of the biggest ones I was going to just mention that is that there's so many of them where do I start exactly it's tough sometimes to know yeah I mean I do like the fact that you know certain like Ed's got his specific, this is his series, and he's kind of like, this is my series. 
you guys can talk to me about the stuff you're putting together. And if you want help, go ahead. But if you make something your own, just check with me, and I'm sure I'll be okay with you changing whatever I might have thought might be in that area or whatever. Right. And, of course, some people have taken that and completely run with it, like Salvatore, who's just pumping out Drizzt novels left and right, or Drizzt novels, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And uh, I believe he calls them Drizzt. Drizzt. I think I've heard so. It so many different ways, but we haven't actually, we, like, we've never actually talked to him or had him on, and uh, and so I've never really known, and I've heard it from some of the other authors different ways. So, I'm like, well, and then there's the audiobooks, of course, which, however the you know the reader presents it is how the reader presents it. Which I've gotten to be, I'm going to listen to Audible and listen to all the books. I listened to all your books through Audible, which. You know, the readers of that were amazing. Like, and they changed the author or the the voice. And if, immediately, I was I don't want the, I love the reader for this one, and I know this next reader coming up. And as much as I kind of liked him in that other one, but he took over for that other one as well. And then he went going, and I stepped away, listened to some other ones, and then came back with a clean mind of who the voice was. And then I really enjoyed it. And luckily, you know, a little piece of trivia. It was actually the other way around. The fellow who narrated Lord of Runes was actually the first, because that was the first book to come out through Tor, and it was one of the first, if not the first, audiobook. Oh. And then it was a different outfit uh, contracting the narrators, and then they used the other fellow. Okay. So when people think they switched in the fourth book. They're right, but the fourth book was actually... Recorded first? I, I said the fourth. The fifth book. The fifth book was recorded oh, first. Okay. Yeah, I, was, I, I had read something on, again, on the Internet that it was like they were kind of both pseudo-recording somewhat at the same time or something along those lines where that's why. And I was like, okay, well, I can accept that. That makes sense. And it's not like anybody really has control over it except for the, you know, the company that does the recording or companies that do the recording. So, But at any rate, I really enjoyed the, the, the reader of the second one as well. I just, at, for the first three, whenever I would run... I had this voice in my head. Usually the voice was whenever Count Jagari would say something like Taradavan, like trying to put him back in his place and like, don't do that, where he would just say his name once and that would automatically put me in the mindset of what his accent was. And so I had a hard time switching, but the next reader had more of an English accent, which I could kind of see a little bit more of the hoity-toity-ness from a more proper English accent, if that makes sense to you. It does, it does. It's like the old movies from the 50s and 60s when they would cast uh, English actors as the Romans <laughs> and American actors as the peasant or slave class. And it would immediately give you an audible clue as to the class difference. Yeah, that, I never thought about it that way. Go back and watch Spartacus. Yeah, no, I was just, that used to be, Spartacus and Ben-Hur were two of my favorite TV sh- uh two of my favorite movies they'd make us watch in school. They're like, we're going to watch this. And most of the other kids would grow on it. I'd be like, yes, <laughs> free day to watch Spartacus. So when you, when we start off with Radovan and the Count, which I believe you call them the boys, I don't know if that's an official thing or just what you call them. That's just a thing. <laughs> it's just, it's just shorthand. I, I see it every once in a while pop up when I'm reading stuff or I'm checking. Cause I do obviously surf the net and, uh, I see that. And we, quite often we watched your whole story, your thing, your post that you posted on, I want to see your character build ideas for these characters not necessarily mine so it was really fun going through that and it was we didn't find it until long after it was over because we had speculated on it 
ever since we started reading them. Every like well, after I read the first book, my best friend he goes, "So what did you think? What do you think they are? What's this?" And he's asking all these questions. Oh. And then I went and looked online, and it was like, "Nope, I'm not telling you guys. I'll drop some hints, but tell me what you think." <laughs> I like the idea that especially the count mm-hmm. could be built differently in any group that plays with him. Mm-hmm. I like the idea that it could be a bit of a surprise and that it changes over time. Because one of the things I like about the Count as a character is that he loves knowledge. He's always yeah. learning and he's always changing because of what he learns. And so, thankfully, uh, my editor, James Sutter, has allowed me to take some liberties with the rules yeah. and to, to, to address the spirit of the rules more than the letter of the rules when it makes for an interesting character situation. Yeah, and I, and I completely get that. But people still want to... What's your favorite build that other people have made? Well, I picked them in that contest, and it was tough because there were more than three great ones that I was looking yeah. at. I, I picked some that were uh, different from what I had ever thought of, and I picked some that were right on what I was thinking when I wrote my notes in the okay. beginning. But the most important thing about seeing those character builds is that it changes my perspective. So going forward, after seeing something like that, I think of different ways in which the characters might evolve. Okay. And sometimes I just get lucky. For instance, in Prince of Wolves, there's a character, not one of the boys, but another mm-hmm. character, a very important character, who doesn't operate exactly like a normal cleric. And I had an idea for her. It was completely character-based. It was not rule-based. And then I don't have any reason to believe that the person who designed the class was thinking of that character. But when the Oracle came out, I realized that's the perfect fit for this character that I <laughs> was writing a year ago. Mm-hmm. And um, somebody joked early on that I had a knack for guessing what the next design was going to yeah. be. And it was just, it was either dumb luck or it was a designer uh, having read the novel and saying, I think I can make that work. Nice. Is that what happened with when people started picking out Magus later down the line? I have, you know, again, I have no reason to believe that the, uh, the designer had the characters in mm-hmm. mind. But it sure makes for a nice fit later, doesn't it? It does. We actually sat down and were thinking about it, and I came. And uh, and I, w- I really wanted to get in on the contest. And like I, I wouldn't have been able to really pinpoint Radovan, because he seems, other than personality, like I think his characters, all the characters are personality. But you don't you don't really need to pick out the like a character build with him because you can do anything with like that he does with a couple different variances like other than you know maybe when he's possessed by a big thing and learns the super palm strike of death and destruction which I'd yeah, that's one of those rare cases when i thought of a game rule first and then found a way to make it work <laughs> in the story yeah and it and it totally made sense and there was a, i read up something you had posted and i think it was in that thing where it seemed you kind of slightly had mentioned that maybe our innocent might not just be a dog he maybe has a thing of mythic and i thought well wait a second Mm. if he's mythic there's a good chance and i didn't think about this till long after i had read that that slight post and it was just so minute and minuscule that it was almost like it was a afterthought that you had thought of and it must have been an afterthought i don't even remember saying yeah and it was it was just like a little two-line thing in response to somebody else's response that's that's probably it Somebody else gave me the idea after and it, the fact. And that get, got me to think, because there was a part in Master of Devils, which I love the fact that he goes to a different country or a different location or kind of a different setting for almost all of the books. That's just about my favorite thing about the Pathfinder setting. There are a lot of favorite uh-huh. things. But the fact that it's so big and so diverse and often very reflective in a funhouse mirror sort of way 
of the real world. So you can go to a place like China. You can go to a place like India. And that way you can draw on real-world legends and culture to flesh out the fantasy side. Well, and I was just the other day looking. There's, we were trying to figure out. Well, what would be the Russia of, of, you know, the of. The world, Galarian. Well, there is. And there, I thought there is that. Go ahead. Oh, there is that Soviet Union type nation over in Avistan. I can't think of its name off the top of my head. Is it Bravoy? Yeah, Bravoy is kind of what I what I was thinking. But other people were pointing other things out at some of the other ones by based on some of the like the culture stuff and the pictures that are drawn in some of the books. And it wasn't until I said Bravoy and I was like, look at all the city names and look at all the noble names. Those are all Russian names. And they're like, oh yeah. And I never thought that there would be, you know, there's like the whole northern section, uh, multiple people would name a different country in that whole northern section that of that place right. that could be Russia. And it's like, oh, like uh, uh, Baba Yaga, the country that she's from. Well, Baba Yaga is a Russian, you know, thing. And obviously, gypsies are from Romani, and that's all of Verizia is where the Skarni come from. So, and then you add in the whole gypsies and, like, Ustalov and, you know, obviously, which you, the Prince of Wolves. So... Yeah, it's just nice to have all of those countries for you guys to go through. And they're not exactly the same as when they're real-world no, inspiration. No, it's so. kind of a little mixture of stuff. Yeah. But he had, when he was over in Tianza, I was really curious about the, there was a spell that just, like a scroll that just randomly went off on Count Jagari, and he didn't seem to really understand why or how that happened. And I don't, I don't believe that it was ever actually specifically covered, but it wasn't until I had, after I had thought about it, and I had thought about that particular situation again, I was like, how did that happen? And then I, the thing in my mind pinpointed where I read something about Arnasant maybe being mythic. And there's a mythic feat called Mythic Scribe Scroll that you can cast a scroll without actually taking it out. And it, it can be sitting anywhere on your body, but it has to be on your body. And I was like, wait a second. <laughs> now, wait a second. That works way too coincidentally. <laughs> I think that's another happy yeah, coincidence, yeah. actually. I don't, rem- I don't remember having that in mind. <laughs> well, there you go. It's in the rules. <laughs> if he's of course, that was, that was four books ago, yeah. just the Pathfinder books, you know, seven or eight books ago, and I forget an awful lot. Yeah. After, when there are two or three books between me and one we're talking about, I, I will lose a lot of um, details. I'll lose a lot of that, the details. That's, yeah. To be honest, and I don't know if you've talked to any of your, the other people that you work around, but that seems to be very common. So yes. you know, doing these things and they're like, I don't really remember that part in the book. And it's like, well, that's okay. You probably spent way more time writing it and you don't need to worry about that anymore. You're looking forward. Whereas most fans always look back to relive whatever they've read when it comes to, I don't know. That's I'm just spitballing there on that theory. <laughs> just a year or two ago, I pulled out a, a manuscript that I'd written well over 15 years mm-hmm. earlier, and I had virtually no recollection of it. As I was reading it, I kept thinking, this sounds awfully familiar. Yeah, yeah, I guess I did write this, but I, I couldn't have told you what it was before I read it again. Really? Like nothing yeah. at all, or just like details? or um, I could have told you who the characters were and what their conflict was, okay. but I didn't remember any details of the events in each chapter. You know, my, my late father had a basement full of mystery novels. And even decades ago, when he and I were both much younger, he would say to me, 
I got halfway through a mystery novel the other day before I realized I had read it before, and I couldn't remember the end. So I kept reading it. It occurred to him at that point that he didn't need to buy another mystery story for the rest of his life. Just go back. Because he would just keep going back <laughs> through them. I'm sometimes that way with uh-huh. old movies. Um, I, was, I, I recently recorded some great old uh, um, um, Myrna Loy and, uh, gosh, I can't say his name suddenly, Powell, William Powell films. Okay. Not the famous Thin Man movies, oh. but the, the less the less famous ones that they also did together. <laughs> okay. And I would get 30, 40 minutes into it, and I'd say, I've seen this before. <laughs> I've definitely seen this, but I haven't watched it for 20 years, and so I've forgotten how it turns out. Yeah. I actually kind of stopped watching movies just because I can't keep up with them. And I have so many that I, I used to watch them over and over again, regardless of whether I knew the endings or not. Just because I, I want to watch Police Academy 5 for the 16,000th time, or whatever yeah. it was. Do you have, you were talking about, uh, I don't remember exactly what your word was, but it reminded me, do you, when you create a novel, do you create like an outline and like write out A, B, C, 1, 2, 3 outline of it? Or do you just kind of give yourself a couple pages of notes? Or do you just kind of like think of each chapter? How do you, how, what's your process? I write ridiculous outlines. Um, I've made a promise to myself several times over the past few years to write shorter outlines, and I've slightly succeeded. But I think my most ridiculous outline was about 15,000 oh words long. Now, that that wasn't just the story. That was also details. That was okay. also my research notes. Because writing a, a novel in a shared world setting is like doing research in an historical period. Because you want to get the details right. You want to choose a few characters from the mm-hmm. setting to appear as incidental characters, so it all feels real. It's kind of like watching a uh, a movie set in the 20s, and you, you get a glimpse of, say, Teddy Roosevelt yeah. or someone famous. You want to make sure that people know that they're in Galarian, and if they go to a particular place in Galarian, you want the the, the, the architecture to be the, yeah. what it should be. You want the, the, the animals that you see to be the animals that live there, and so on. So I, I make some pretty extensive notes before I actually get started. Now, that said, um, once the outline gets approved, um, the editor allows and encourages you to, to deviate from that if it makes okay. the story better. He wants to know how it's going to turn out. He wants to know um, that you're not going to kill the queen yeah, of a particular yeah. country because that, that sort of thing has to remain static for the gamers. But you, you have a certain amount of freedom to innovate even after you've written a fairly... Uh, I was actually really curious about that, especially when it came to, oh, I want to say it's King of Chaos, where they, and it might be Lord of Runes, where they start out in the city of Corvosa. Actually, I think it's Lord of Runes. That is Lord of Runes, yes. Probably, I don't know, three, four months later, I got the big map. of. uh, I was going to run in Verizia, because we kind of have a game that I'm mixing in with the other two. That's just me and my two friends, and we're playing ourselves, basically. It's a silly thing we've been doing since high school. And uh, so I decided I was going to drop them and have their base be in the city of Corvosa. So I got Verizia, and I got the city of Corvosa, and I got a bunch of like little side books just to kind of see where the locations are. And it wasn't until I did, and I was looking down, and I was like, wait a second, Jiggy's Jug? I knew that sounds familiar. And then I go, oh, this is the map of that. And then I looked at it. And I kind of jogged my own brain about some of the stuff mentioned, and I could literally look at the map and follow the path that Radovan took through the city. And you explained it in such detail. I was like, oh my gosh. 
this is actually really cool to have the map out and then kind of go through some of the stuff he was pointing out or some of the backstory, like when he wanted to steal the sign. It's like, well, where was that sign that he wanted to steal? <laughs> and I was curious about that, <laughs> that if you like literally looked at the city of Corvosa or pulled up a map when explaining it ahead of time, and I'm guessing that's what you did based on what you just said about the looking at your backstory. Yes, yeah, sort of. What what happened in that case, and what usually happens, is I come up with mm-hmm. a story, a plot, and then I look at the source material, and if I need a place, I look at the map and I think, is there a place that mm-hmm. serves my need? And if there is, I don't invent one. I try yeah. to use what's already there. Only if there's something that I really need for the story that doesn't mm-hmm. exist do I add something. And I liked your little the little part that he's... I don't really want to pay attention to all the other Jagaris because they're all conniving, scheming, nobility stuff. And it was a really great <laughs> way of saying, yes, all this stuff in the city is there and there's a museum to him and he's got people that are related to him have his same name there. But he's not going to interact with them because he doesn't really like them. Well, it's important to remember they're not named yeah, for him. Yeah. They're, they're named for his yes. port ancestors. But they're still like the descendant. I think one of them runs like a museum or something, doesn't he? Yes, we, yes, uh, there is one over there. A distant cousin, I we, think. Uh, in this particular game where I plopped them into the city of Cor- Well, when they first showed up, they showed up in Chelyax, and I literally, like, they basically dropped in Radovan's lap because we liked the characters, and we thought it would be really cool because two of us have read all the novels, and we kind of made this... It's a long, weird backstory, but they knew who they were, but not the other way around. So they used that to kind of get help to figure out what was going on and whatever, and they ended up in Corvosa. And it was kind of pseudo like Pathfinder Society-ish, where they would actually get a chronicle sheet. I would custom make a chronicle sheet for them with information ahead of time so that they could succeed in certain events. And, I don't know, like the sixth or seventh uh, chronicle sheet they had to have Count Jagari basically go talk to his relative. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> anyhow, that aside, I don't know why I keep bringing that crap up. Uh, so, also in that book, I'm talking about the details and whatnot, you brought up the house drakes that live in Corvosa, which is obviously, I'm guessing, researched. Yes. Well, yes, but that leads me to ex- explain. I didn't actually, well, I, I think it was whoever created Corvosa who created the idea that the, how, the drakes, um, which have a different name in, in yeah, the pseudo, game terms. Yeah, pseudo-dragon, but have pseudo-dragon drakes. game terms. Right. Um, but the, the first time I encountered them in fiction, or as part of the writer in fiction, mm-hmm. was in Winter Witch. Because Elaine had uh, a house drake as a character in that story. And because of the schedule that year, I helped her finish that book. So I became attached to that okay. drake, uh, Skyway, and expanded his role a bit in, the, in okay. the novel. And then when I came back to Corvosa, I thought, whatever happened to him? So if you pay attention, the drake who's mm-hmm. involved in this story is not Skywing, but she's oh, probably his dog. Okay. I will have to keep an eye on that. Actually, Winter Witch is next on my list because it was up in the Russian thing. Well, not specifically, but it's up in that area, and I hadn't read that, and everyone's told me it's really good. I should read it, so that's next on my list, actually. Elaine has a great love of and understanding of Ukrainian okay. folklore. So yeah, I, think I just did an ancestry thing, and I found out I'm a quarter Slovenian, and so that's part of the There the you whole. go thought processes i want to you know that kind of stuff and of course have you looked through or read or played through the curse of the crimson throne system or game oh yes yes it's one of my favorite I was of the adventure very curious about that because 
I don't know if it's I don't know what the deal is, but it's I don't it doesn't seem to be mentioned in any of the actual canon other than in Curse of the Crimson Throne of that whole story. Except for you had a Grey Maiden show up and you specifically talk about you know, that kind of situation that had happened in Curse of the Crimson Throne. It's like, you know, he had to have either played that or thumbed through it quite a bit because they, and they've actually stashed in the new, because they combined all of the little books into one big book. And in there, yes. they actually have the statted house drake as opposed to the pseudo dragon. It's like a whole challenge rating higher. And I'm, they have some feats where you can apply it to the pseudo dragon to make them be able to kill imps and stuff. But this, the house drake, is like a specific design that's the the terrestrial uh, pseudo dragon variant, and I thought that that was. Now, have have you read the web fiction? I read one of them. <clears throat> um, okay, if you're a fan of mm-hmm. Curse of the Crimson Throne, go back and look for the fencing master, and then think of that. Um, Think of Lord of Runes when you read The Fencing Master. You'll see how it all ties together. Like I said, I did one of them. It's the one where he goes to the opera. Oh, that was one of the earliest ones. And the main reason I did that is I I found out that they did a bunch of the the web series in little super short stories that were like $3 on Audible. And I was like, sweet, I want to listen to all of them. So I went to go look for all of them, and I realized there was only the one. It's like, oh, man, they should come out with all of them, like do an anthology (laughs) of all of the short tales and put them on Audible or... It would That'd be, be wonderful. Awesome. Um, I think it's tough to sell anthologies these days, though. People tend to want know, to buy right? novels. We had uh, a handful of people doing The Awakening, and I don't remember, I don't know if anybody that did that was um, anyone that you know, but they basically can only do it because of Kickstarter. That's the only way they can fund it, because they can't, because there's not right. purchase power for it. That's one of the things I really like about Kickstarter is it allows projects yeah, like that to happen. And the concept is really great. And I have, well, I have the first one on EPUB until they republish it. And then I've got the second one. And I'm really excited this summer when I get some spare time to be able to actually sit down and read it because it's, uh, the concept was really awesome. Um, hmm. So speaking of, you know, Curse of the Crimson Throne, and it being one of your favorites, what do you prefer to GM or do you prefer to be a player? I'm 99% GM. Is that GM. because you're forced to, though, or is it because that's what you want to do? No, I do enjoy it. I, I, I like to play, but I'm really, really picky about mm-hmm. GMs. So if there's a great one, I want to yeah. sit at that table. But if, if they're just an okay GM, I'd, I'd rather... I'd rather be engaged the whole time. And the great thing about being a GM is, even though there's an awful lot of work involved... You're always playing, whereas if you're a player, you're waiting for yeah. other people's turns. For, you know, if there are six of you, you're getting the, the attention of the GM for ten minutes out of every hour, unless you cooperate very well with the other players. So to me, the best groups are the ones who are always interacting with each other so that nobody ever feels like they're just sitting there waiting for their turn. It's always everybody's turn yeah. until you hit combat. I, I get that. I, I like asking that question because we always get a different we get this, you know, one of two answers, obviously, but the reason is always different, and I really like that, and I tend to like to ask that to any guests uh, that we have on, because like I said, every time it's different. My next question is, do you prefer to do pre-mades, or do you prefer to come up with your own games that you run? Um, I think I prefer published adventures, because I get so many uh, 
so many uses out of them because I'm enjoying the adventure the first time I read it. I'm enjoying it again as I read it a second or third time to be prepared for the game. And I'm, I'm enjoying it a third time when I see the players react to it differently than I might have expected. Are you, do you feel that you're better running pre-made games then as well? Uh, I used to run a house campaign when mm-hmm. I was a young man, uh, of course in high school and college and then for some years afterward. And that was a lot of fun. It was very satisfying because you could tailor it to the players. But uh, I, I really admire the work of a good mm-hmm. game designer or a, a group of designers. And I like being part of the audience, especially on the front end when I'm reading somebody's story for the first time. Of course, it's not really a story until yeah, the players touch it. you never know what they're going to do or how they're going to react or what they're even going to play. Exactly. You know, if, you, if you don't have somebody to take care of traps in a, in a fantasy-type setting, if you don't have a rogue or any trap-finding sort of person, the outcomes may be a lot different <laughs> than when they didn't or if they can't, you know, do something else. Uh, what does... Also, also, I'm a big nerd for miniatures and art and handouts. And if you buy a, a, a popular or a big published adventure, you get all of this wonderful material that you can use at the table. I like mm-hmm. the tactile stuff. So I don't, I don't like to play online as much yeah. as I did when I was young. I like to play at a table. Lots of yeah, I, toy, I do like hands up, you know, but toy value. No, not many people do those these days unless it's a pre-made. But I like, you know, when you take out the piece of paper and you make, like, a hand-drawn map and then you, like, kind of burn the edges to kind of make give it that old map feel and crinkle it up and put a little twine on it and just, this is what you find, and let them figure it out from there. If it's a puzzle, exactly. then that's good. And it takes a lot less dice rolling, and then they feel more accomplished than to figure it out in person than they do, let me roll a dice. Look, I rolled a nat 20. I win. <laughs> what does, uh, besides, besides Pathfinder, what other systems are kind of your go-to systems? Well, the last couple of years I've been playing 5th okay. edition D&D, which I was I was slow to try it, but once I did, I loved it. And uh, the other game that I, uh, I, I feel most comfortable with and love the most mm-hmm. is Call of Cthulhu. So we've been playing a little bit of the 7th edition of that game. But we put it on hold because I had invited a group of players, uh, many of whom were novices, to play Call of Cthulhu. And they loved the setting, but some of them were having difficulty not kicking down the door and <laughs> killing stuff. So I thought, let's get that out of their system. Let's play some D&D for a while. And once they've got their yayas out, it'll be time to do a proper investigation. I think they'll that- have more fun that way. So we're currently working our way through Curse of Strahd, and whoever survives will go on to uh, either Horror on the Orient Express or possibly okay. Day of the I've Beast. actually never gotten to play Call of Cthulhu. Mostly because oh, it's none wonderful. of my friends but, are big Lovecraft, Lovecraftian type fans. Well, you don't really have to be. One of the greatest Call of Cthulhu adventures has more to do with Indiana Jones well, than I it mean, does with Lovecraft. Well, I mean more of the genre, That's I the, guess I could say. Yeah, but the genre is really big, so you can make it much more of a pulp adventure or you can make it more of a horror story. Lovecraft stories are very difficult to portray as role-playing adventures with five or six players involved, because there's usually a solitary doomed hero whose struggle is mostly, I'm so scared about what I just learned. And that's not really great for role-playing, but the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game gives you opportunities for research and investigation and interaction with other characters, uh, much more than just combat. And I think that if you gave it a try, you'd really dig it. Yeah, I mean, everybody, like... The Eberron setting, they've done, you know, the big scary, that kind of stuff through Eberron. And they've done, everybody loves Arkham Horror, the the board game. 
but I just I and I actually have one friend I think who who really enjoyed Call of Cthulhu and all that I think about it, but getting him to GM is like pulling toenails. So. <laughs> Well, sometimes you just gotta take the bull by the horns True. and ride Actually, yourself. I, we have a con that comes up here next week, con of the north. Not next, well, this will be last month when this episode airs, but for us, it's in February, and I think that they have a couple call of Cthulhu, call of Cthulhu's, and I might actually just sign up for that and just go play it with some people I don't know. Yeah, yeah, you should sit in on one. Like, you know, watch or whatever the deal is. No, no, no! Don't watch. <laughs> you must play. There are no spectators. There's in role no tickets games. available, and I can't join well then you yeah then you might have to watch for a little bit but try to find a game that you can play yeah, i think you'll then, really dig it when i was a kid i walked past a, a table with a friend uh jamming a game of call of cthulhu and when i heard him mention that somebody had lost sanity points i thought what a stupid <laughs> game but I, I couldn't have been more wrong a few years later i actually looked at the rules and i realized the sanity system <laughs> in call of cthulhu is one of the simplest and most elegant uh, uh, horror mechanics in all of role-playing. And the way it works is very simple. Your sanity basically keeps you grounded to the world. It allows you to function as a human being. When you lose all of your sanity, you're basically evil or mad, and you're no longer a player. The, the, the keeper takes your character away from you. But at the same time, one of the most valuable skills in the game is Cthulhu mythos. That's knowledge of this yeah. horrible stuff that's going on. And the more mythos you have, the less sanity you can have. So your maximum sanity is always 99 minus whatever you know about. Which makes sense, because the more you know, the crazier you, it is. Exactly. And you need to balance that, because you want to know a little bit about the darkness, but not so much that, that it drives you mad. That seems to come across very well. I mean, it comes to translate very well in the, you know, in a lot of Lovecraft's types books. And I always reference Lovecraft because those are the only real stories that I've read in that theory other than maybe a ghostbusters cartoon <laughs> yeah, and i know there's a lot of stuff that's themed off of that what is now you're working on something that's very similar right coming up um i've done, I've done my work on it <clears throat> that's what i meant i did you know my work I mean. on it last year <laughs> but the uh first of a new series of arkham horror novellas is coming out uh march 13th i think um and for a month it'll be available only through the fantasy flight uh web store but then one month later it'll be available in game stores and uh, itunes and amazon and all the rest and this first one is called hour of the huntress and it stars one of the iconic arkham horror characters jenny barnes who's kind of a two-gun toting uh miss fisher from miss mm -hmm. fisher's murder mystery she said she's a bit of a dilettante she knows a little bit of everything she's wealthy but not just a snob and in the story, she gathers a, a group of oddball misfit helpers uh, to solve the mystery of her missing sister when she comes home. Do you put some of your stories together as if it's a, as if it's a like a kind of a pseudo role playing group? Because it seems like you, know, you always have a little. Do like you have your main character or two, which are like the two people that are always there, right. and then you've got all these supporting casts that hey, when you can show up to the game, we'll just put you in there. When I first think about a story, I'm usually thinking in terms of fiction or or film or television. I usually think more in terms of a narrative. But there are times, especially when some element of the setting or the rules give me an idea, that I do start thinking about characters in a game again. 
but usually that comes later, not not always seems to stand out. Like we always like, oh, but so who in this particular book, who is the group? And so when you mention that she gathers a group of misfits, that's a total way to start the game right there. The GM is her, right, and everybody is. else it is, is but it's also the group. And obviously, I don't know the actual book because I haven't read it, so I'm just guessing that that would that's what it sounds like to me. I think it could fit that way. <laughs> Out of all the characters that you've done, what um, what uh, which ones stand out the most to you as like some of the ones that like you could you you feel you could just write forever, which obviously isn't always the case. Some people, you know, I'm done with that, moving on to something new and different. Well, the obvious answer mm-hmm. is Radovan and the Count because I've written them more than all of my other characters combined, um, and their voices once they came to me stuck with me. Radovan is super easy to write. I never even have to think about him. Uh, the Count is a little bit harder, but once I get into the groove, he's very easy to write. And I get attached to an awful lot of the secondary characters, but very few of them last more than a book or two. So it's difficult to compare them with characters who've lasted five books and two novellas and however many short stories. They're, they're the ones that I've become most accustomed to. They're like you know, those, those two old dogs I've had since I was a kid. Are they... Uh and yeah, I don't like I said I was probably going to be bouncing around a little bit here, which happens from time to time. When uh, when you were doing Jagari and Radovan, or we think of them, was there like a Sherlock influence? Not in the beginning. Actually, I take that back. Maybe there was. The story's a little bit complicated because I'll try to keep this short. But when James Sutter first asked for pitches for uh, Pathfinder Chronicles, not even the novel yet, but the novella, it's basically. Uh, do we like these characters enough to write a novel about them? He uh, asked me to give him four or five ideas. I gave him mm-hmm. three or four, I think, and he asked me to, to send him a few more because he wasn't crazy about the first few. And I th- thought, um, I don't know that I have any more ideas off the top of my head, but then wait. I dug out an old pitch that I had sent to another editor years earlier, and I th- used the basis of that story to create mm-hmm. a slightly different pitch that became the uh, Hell's Ponds novella, which created okay. uh, Radovan and the Count. And the one the one thing that I did have in mind that linked them to Holmes and Watson in the beginning was I kind of wanted to tell a story from the point of view of not the, not the hero, not the genius, mm-hmm. but his helper. And that's kind of the same way that Holmes and Watson work, because Watson uh-huh. is the one who's narrating the stories. Because I am not as smart as Sherlock Holmes <laughs> or Count Jaguar. But I think I'm clever, as clever as Radovan. So I can see a smart guy through Radovan's yeah. eyes more easily than I can portray the smart guy as a first-person character. And that's one of the things that makes writing Varian hard for me is because I want him to be smarter than I am, but you can't have a character who's smarter than you are if you're explaining his yeah. mental process. You know what I mean? So he's always more of a challenge in that respect. And Radovan was a much more comfortable fit for me as the point of view character, in part because in the month before James asked me to pitch these stories, I'd been watching an okay. awful lot of film noir. So Radovan's tough guy, hard-boiled detective type <laughs> voice came to me almost immediately. When you decided to introduce Arnasant in the book, did you expect him to be a reoccurring character, NPC? Yes, I suppose so. Arnasant, now that you mention it, now that I think about it, is... Uh, the only character in those books that I knowingly based oh, yeah. on a real person. Uh, I once met a very big Irish wolfhound named Thane, 
And what really amazed me about him, I'd heard some stories. He belongs to one of my okay. uh, English professors in college. And there, I'd heard a couple stories about Thane. Uh, the fellow who owned him was a very slender man and not a very strong man. And he had this gigantic dog. One day he was walking the dog across the quad when a kid nearby threw a frisbee and Thane just <laughs> bolted for it, dragging the poor, poor professor behind him. Dislocated oh, no. his shoulder. He was in a cast for months. It was terrible. So I was a little intimidated when I went to his house one night. He wanted to play some uh, Wagner for his uh, okay. for his T.S. Eliot class. So I went over there to listen to his high-end record system. And I went in through the side door, and a dog walked up to me from the other side of that door and looked me straight in the yeah. eye because he was my height. And I was only standing one step <laughs> below him. But as I as I gradually opened the door, the dog rose up on its hind legs and put his paws on my shoulders and looked <laughs> down at me. So when I was thinking, I want I want an impressive dog uh, for this story. I thought I want a dog just like Thane. So Harness Ant is based on. Did Thane. you listen to any of the audiobooks? A little bit. I liked what I heard of the voice of the narrators, but I I have a hard time looking at or hearing okay. my own writing yeah. and so I'm doing it for research I'm um, self-conscious I always think oh I could have made that sentence better that, that, that would have been a lot better with just two sentences or how did I cram so many adjectives the into that the reader paragraph? of the first three when he the, the opening line and it's and it's just as much your writing and the way it's written as to how he voiced it that I didn't need to know like it didn't need to say the name of the dog I knew that it was the dog right away from the beginning. And Oh good. And good. I mean, like I said, the writing of it stood out to me, just the way that the words are put together. It really sounded like a little kid who's way smarter than a little kid. And Right. Just every once in a while when, when he would I'm, say, He is a good boy or I am a good boy from Arnasan's perspective, the voice of the person reading it, you could I have two dogs. And I can see that voice coming from either of them. And to be honest, any dog exactly. that's a good boy has that same inflection that that author or that that reader had. Oh, I'm glad that came across. There's actually one other inspiration for that, and that is, I don't want to spoil anything for those people who haven't read the, the book, but Arnesat goes through a mm -hmm. process in that book. He changes a little bit, and at the end he changes in a different way. And uh, the, the inspiration I had in mind... Uh, and I, I didn't mimic it directly, of course, because he's mm -hmm. he's not a human being. Was uh, flowers for Algernon? No. Do you know that famous story? I mean, maybe it might be one of those. Okay, I don't want to spoil anything. Might be one anything. of those old movies where once you get through, I'll be like, oh yeah, that's right. But oh, in it? fact, I think it was a movie. But it's a it's a famous story. Uh, maybe it's a novelette. It's it's a, it's called it's a flowers long short what? story. I flowers for Algernon, and I believe it's by Daniel Keyes. It's very well worth reading and i think i should just shut up at that point because i am getting too close <laughs> to spoilers well i i, I do want to there's one spoiler out of that talking about our set that i kind of want to give away just because i want you to know how how it was for me uh, there's a it's on my okay head. Well, it's on your head then. we don't mind we're, we're i mean we like if we give away some spoilers hopefully whatever we do give away we don't give away enough to ruin anything but there was a point right where Radovan was out of control, and this is in Master of Devils, where he's like, big bruh. And 
like he goes after Count Jigari and he doesn't realize what's going on or anything. And when Arnasant comes up and like just gently mows his hand and that's what takes him to realize what's going on. Just hearing that, which would be equivalent of reading it, like I had li- literal and don't tell anybody that anybody that we know, I had literal tears <laughs> coming down my face, going oh, <laughs> at that at that particular <laughs> moment. And I'm actually getting a little tear-eyed right now. So don't yeah, tell anyone that, that I'm getting tear-eyed. Parts of that book are for people mm-hmm. who have lived with dogs, and and we understand how how they communicate with us. And that's one of the ways that our dog, for instance. Um, has a very soft mouth. You can play with her, you can take something out of her mouth, and she mm-hmm. will not break the skin. And that was the idea. Was that sometimes a dog needs to stop you, needs to use his mouth to make you stop doing the thing that you're yeah. doing. Maybe you're tickling him or something. But he will not hurt you. And once you know that he's got his once you know he's got his mouth on your hand, you realize he's telling you something. Yeah. He's giving you and a message. To me, when I talked with my friend Matt after I had read it, because every time I finish a tales book that he's read he's like well what did you think what, what what about this and what about that and he'll ask a bunch of stuff and the first thing that he asked about that book and i went i didn't expect to arnasant be the main hero of the story <laughs> well he is so clearly yeah, a hero yeah. compared to the other guys uh, radovan and the count are a little bit more gray but arnasant is he's there's, a, there's he's no a question good he's gonna be a good boy <laughs> he's gonna do the right thing uh when we talk about some other canon stuff such as eando klein uh, like, did you have? Uh, who came up with Yando Klein, and how did he get in your book? Uh, Yando Klein was created, I think, by a number of people. I can't remember who the first one was, but James Sutter wrote some of his stories, and I think Eric Mona did, and maybe James Jacobs. And I, I got to stop saying names because I'm going to get <laughs> one wrong really soon. But they, Yando was the hero of the original Pathfinder Chronicles and the first uh, couple mm-hmm. or three adventure paths. And different people wrote his stories, but he was always the same character. And I thought he was terrific. I really enjoyed. I mean, those were the, some of the first stories that I read when I began to learn about uh, Galarian. And he's got a fabulous yeah. miniature and a great painting. And I, he also has a story arc that parallels in some ways some of the things that uh, mm-hmm. Count Chigar has gone through. And I thought, wouldn't they make good foils for each other? Because yeah. they're not the same character. But they've made some of the same choices, mm-hmm. but maybe for self- different reasons. And they might not immediately trust or like each other, but let's put them in a situation where they, yeah. they have to work together and see how it works out. And so, because he's not my creation, I ask permission, as I always do when I'm borrowing somebody else's character in these in the Pathfinder Tales. And they said, yes, sure, use him. It's one of those and very so unique instances that I really enjoy seeing like a world crossover because it makes it makes it more real. So it doesn't make the Count and Radovan and all them in their own copy of their own version of Galarian. They're in there with everybody else. And so yeah, I I never would want to write Spider-Man. I would want to write yeah. Marvel team up. And other than Tim Pratt who has his two main characters in a mini story together, I don't think that there's really any other books where a character from one shows up you know, with another character that they didn't necessarily create, but is in canon and is in a bunch of other sort of materials. I'm not sure of a full appearance. Mm-hmm. I know there have been references. I know that Chris has made references has. to yeah. Count Chigar. We, we talked about that holders. on our show, and he was on there. And I and I never realized it, and I kind of wanted and to go I know back that... and listen to that first one again. Uh, <laughs> but my friend Matt, he he owns the physical book, so he actually flipped to the page to find where it's mentioned, and he thought that that was really awesome. 
yeah. I love those the little Easter eggs. Are there any other Easter eggs that you can tell us about that maybe we might not realize? Gosh, I don't. You know, I when I do something like that, I put it in the outline and I write it, and then I forget <laughs> about it. Um, well, you've Grey mentioned Maidens. one already, the Grey Maidens. It's not an Easter egg so much; yeah. it's just using the setting. And so I, I don't think of a lot of them as Easter eggs so much as uh, just using the yeah. setting that exists there. I've borrowed characters from other authors a few times. Um, I co-wrote Winter Witch with Elaine so that later it was okay for me okay. to use Skywing in, in a cameo. And I asked Leanne Merciel and Robin Laws to borrow their characters who had appeared near the world wound when, we, uh, when I wrote King of Chaos. And so two of their characters have substantial supporting what, uh, roles in that which book. Which characters are that? Because I, I think I've done one or two of the, their books. You know off the top of your head? Um, they're, both, they're both secondary okay. characters in their stories. Um, Aprian, I believe, is the name of the sergeant from the World Wound Gambit, yes. and he appears in okay. uh, King of Chaos. And... Oh, Leanne's gonna kick my butt. I can't say her name. The uh, her sorceress, her sand sorceress, appears in okay. King of I don't Chaos. Think I, I think that's the um, next of her books because she's got two. Oh, well, it's it's not in a book. Oh, it's in a short why. story that she wrote. So okay. it's 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 in the web fiction. Yes. Darn that web fiction and me not getting on top of that. I know there there's is. some good it's stuff just, there. I think you should check it. Uh, it's just difficult for me because it doesn't look like a book and it doesn't. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I do, do you have, have an a e-reader nook. of any sort. Um, but it, that makes it a more. I, I I enjoy reading it that way. Do they have it like a, a desktop? You computer. know where you don't have to go on the forums and and look for it. Do they have like an actual like EPUB file or anything like that? I believe so. I believe you can buy most of the web fiction as an EPUB okay. for a couple well, of bucks. I might have to do that then, because then it'll be a lot easier for me to read. Because as of like going onto the forums. And like scrolling through that, it's, oh, I gotta scroll and I scroll and it pulls me out of the story. So the EPUB, getting an EPUB of it, yeah. you know, it might might be the thing to do. Gosh, and then my wife will never see me again. <laughs> Actually, she'd encourage. She <laughs> oh, yeah, you can read it with her because she goes through a book a week. So she's way different than me, and and she listens to audiobooks on her drive to and from work. So I'll get through, you know, an audiobook. That's... Well, actually. I sit and read an audiobook and listen to an audiobook in a day because of my work, my other job, my company, I sit in my car all day and drive all over the place. So I get to listen to, it takes me a day, day and a half to get through an audiobook until I can't, my brain can't comprehend sound coming out anymore. And then I got to switch it to music or something that I don't need to pay attention to or think about. Um, anyhow, that's beside the getting off tangent and all of that fun stuff. Leanne's sorcerer, by the way, is Jelani. I had uh, Jelani. Yeah, she appears in the story she certain. Does. What's what? I swear, I read one of her books. I can't. She's. She did night oh, class. Oh yes, those. And, I haven't uh, done those yet. Those are on my list, but it's the night all stories are kind of scary for me because they just seem like they might be a little more dark than I'm ready to quite get into. As far as I did her first, actually, I did do her first short story. The one where um, where the I don't want to say cleric, but I think he's a cleric of Night All is like trying to find out the murder of his family or something along those lines, and it's a short okay. story of hers. It's like the prequel to right. the Night Glass and the and the other one, which are on my list, 
but because it's in Nidal, which is kind of a creepy country for me, <laughs> I haven't gotten to it yet. Well, you you might like her novel Hell Knight, which is her most recent Pathfinder Tales novel, and I think it's outstanding. It's got a really good uh, Hellspawn yeah, character my, that you might uh, enjoy. My buddy was talking about it, and he said that it is the greatest portrayal of not necessarily good versus evil, but the portrayal of like law versus chaos. And I thought, and that's yes. that's always intrigued me. We made a we did a whole game, a, a piratey game, where you're essentially pirates, and you're here, you're the pirates are heroes because you know pirates were good people who handed out candy in reality, right? So he, the idea was you're playing pirates against the system. And the whole thing was is that it's law versus chaos, law being the system that is corrupt, and chaos being the pirate characters that you're playing as. And so that was kind of the kind of a neat little spin on it. And to hear that there's a book about it, I was like, oh my gosh, law versus chaos book? I gotta do this. Yeah, there's Stop just so up. many. It's I mean it's not like Forgotten Realms. So. so how many of the Pathfinder tales, the other authors' books, have you gone through? Do you read all of them, or do you just not anymore. I, I was able to keep up for two or three years. Now I, I just read an occasional one. Most of my reading these days is also on audiobook, but most of my reading is uh, research. I do an awful lot of listening to uh, to what they call the great courses on Audible. Uh, they're they're okay. basically lecture series, on, in my case. On oh, a particular part I didn't of even know they had like that kind of stuff on there. Oh, they're fantastic, and if you've got an Audible subscription there, a great bargain. Yeah, I can't keep up huge. with my prescription or subscription, so I keep buying the cheap version of three credits, and then I burn through them in a month. <laughs> Not to mention the one that I get normally. <laughs> so yeah, I might have to look into. Yeah, oh, you can make it work that way too. I, I kind of burn through the credits, and and I still got a long ways to go. Uh, what are some of your favorite fantasy-esque worlds to play in or to run, or is it mostly just like the the um, main like realms and Galarian, etc.? Do you mean? For, for games or for Both, reading? Both, I guess. <clears throat> well, in terms of fantasy worlds, I was a huge fan of not only Amber, but all of the worlds that Roger Zelazny created. He's probably the most influential author on okay. my thinking about fantasy. And I'm a huge fan of the world of uh, Robert E. Howard, yeah. the, the Conan books and all of the related heroes and anti-heroes. Um, I was, of course, a big fan of the Eternal Champion, especially mm-hmm. Elric, Michael Moorcock's creation. Um, it's not a series, but one book that always stands out for me uh, as I was moving from science fiction to fantasy as a, as a teenager was uh, Patricia McKillop's The Forgotten Beasts of Eld. That one really rocked me. It had a very fable-esque quality. It, it felt very much like a, a fairy tale more than uh, what we would think of as a quest fantasy these days. And, of course, I, I bow at the feet of George Martin. I think his series is tremendous. Yes. I love its pieces. How do you, what do you like about the comparison between what they've put on, on TV and the books themselves? I think it's generally outstanding, the uh, series. Uh, there, you know, we can quibble <laughs> about certain things. There are certain, there are certain plot lines that mm-hmm. they've dropped that I really loved, but I can see why they dropped them. And there's at least one major plot line that they've handled differently than I would have liked. But... Uh, you know, they're doing a really outstanding job. The casting has been stellar. Uh, the production values are very high. They've got some mm-hmm. outstanding directors these days on that show. I, I have a hard time complaining about well, it. Well, and the I fact that really they, I think they've only had one main character where the actor has changed. I think 
keeping all the actors in a TV series like that seems monumental when you come to a Actually, it's kind of the opposite. They've really? changed like ten actors. It's just that most most of them are oh, see, fairly minor more actors. Of the, more of the main uh, ones. I mean, I guess they did the mountain too. I forgot about minor that. Minor characters. Yeah. They've changed him and twice at least. Uh, go ahead. And they changed. Um, the, the the kid who played Tommen was actually a different Lannister oh. earlier on. Uh, so there's there have been two Tommens. Um, the, the fellow who keeps coming back from the dead. Now I can't yeah. say his name. The Lightning Lord. He's been two different guys. Of course, they played. They, they changed Dario Naharis, and I'm, I can't think off the top of my head who else has changed. A bunch of the supporting cast in the North have uh, changed. Well, you, you noticed it way um, easier than me, and I'm good at checking that stuff out. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm kind of a nerd for A Song wow. of Ice and Fire. I, 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 I read a lot of the of the fan theories and watch the videos and I reread so we have a whole a couple of years. episode about that we'll br- how about we bring you back for that and you you and my wife and Matt I would be glad talk and I would be glad to side and listen <laughs> and edit it later because I obviously like I watch the movie that sounds like fun and I haven't done the audiobooks because or not the movie but I watch the show and I'm like well and I'm I, I'm the kind of person who oh, always you know, watches whatever I, it is first because I know the book is better so it's like taking a step up rather than taking a step down they're also some of the oh, best really? audiobooks I've ever heard. Uh, there, there are also okay. two narrators for those because uh, Roy Dotrice, who did the first three, was a bit ill when they w- did the fourth. So they took another. Uh, they, they they hired a different narrator. He was also very good, but he wasn't Roy Dotrice. So the fans were just uh, they they were rending their hair and clothing, okay. missing Roy Dotrice. So when he was feeling a little better, not only did he do book five, but he went back and re-recorded book oh, wow. four. So you can have him all the way through if nice. you like, but of course they've been recorded over a period of many yeah. years, so you can you can detect a significant difference in his uh, in his stamina uh, from the nice. first. I was going to say, the does, it, does the change is the change a big difference? Because usually when I see a change coming up in in readers, such as in yours, I realize I have to take a break and go to a different thing so I can prepare my mind to to not to not judge the book based on a voice change because that's just stupid. Well, the thing is, you, you don't have to hear the book four by the other narrator. Okay. You can get them all well, by Roy just, now. It, like, originally, was it one of those where it really throws oh, you off? Oh, I see. And you're like, I don't know if I can listen to this. No, I don't think you'll have that feeling at all. One of the nice things about him is he, he shows different characters with okay. different uh, mm-hmm. accents, different dialects. And he has so many. Of course, there are so many characters in A Song of Ice and Fire that he eventually mm-hmm. runs out and has to recycle them. But then he, you know, does higher and lower voices. He's just a, he's just a marvel. He's one of the best narrators awesome. I've heard. One last question for you: If you were to build, say you were, say you were here in the great wide north with a bunch of random people you had no idea except for, you know, talking to me, what kind of a character would you build for a game that you knew nothing about? Say Pathfinder. Oh, I like, uh, I like. Characters with mm-hmm. charisma and skills. Oh, you're my new best friend. So, I, I, <laughs> characters who can talk their way out of trouble or can, you know, mm-hmm. finesse information out of subjects, and characters who know mm-hmm. a little bit about a lot of things. That's what I like. I that's, like dabblers. Like I said, you're a man after my own heart. I have friends that they get sick of me playing rogues and bards. They don't get sick of it, but there was a point I, in time where. Everyone was told, you can make characters, but you can't make this, and you can't make this, and you can't play any roguish-type, smart-ass, quick-thinker, play a fighter. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. 
But it's not enough fun. <laughs> but I like I like to switch it up. But that is my go-to class is you know rogues and bards, and 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 I can make them a hundred different ways. But generally, they usually have skills. When I play something in, and I love traits because I can play a fighter and pick out a couple skills that I want to make sure that I have. So it's it's yeah, I, I agree with you 100 percent, 110 percent. Is there anything else you want to talk about while we're while we're here, we're crunching down the numbers? But last few minutes, anything else you want to talk about or plug or something coming up? Well, you already let me plug uh, Hour of the Huntress, which is coming up March 13th mm-hmm. over at uh, Fantasy Flight Games. I hope everybody checks that out, especially people who have enjoyed Radovan on the Count, because just as they're the boys, uh, Jenny Barnes and her group are kind of kind of the girls. Uh, it's, they've got a similar vibe in some ways. They're investigators. They have a difference in their classes, but they're still ultimately friends who have each other's backs. And I, I think if you like Radovan on the Count, you're going to like Jenny and Lonnie, we have a lot of sure. local listeners here in the Twin Cities, Minnesota area, and f- it's, it's it's a very geeky yeah, area. It's like the hub, one of the hubs. There's been arguments on this show in the past about which is more, what location is more of a hub, but uh, I mean, Fantasy Flight is. I, I drive by it almost weekly, and they're they're. Have you been there to the to their site? No, I've only been in your neck of the woods once, and it was for a very brief visit okay. to Minicon. They have they have their 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 business center thing, where they do all of their their business and their offices and all of their everything is there. And across the street from there, they have their old warehouse that they've converted to a like a restaurant deli type thing, and a we sell games and stuff. And then they basically decorated in this beautiful, like, hanging paintings. It's all nice and organized and clean and rows of bookshelves of games and rows and rows of tables. They have a section where they have tables that are built specifically with magnifying glasses and stuff and little places to hold paints for people to paint miniatures. And it's basically a... Nice. If you picture what a convention, a a small convention would be, it's like that (laughs) 24-7. I mean, not actually 24-7, but like... I want to go paint some minis, and I don't want to do it at home. Let's go to Fantasy Flight. I want to go... I need to role-play with my group of friends, but I don't have a person, place to play, and we can't get into you know, Perkins or Country Kitchen and sit in the restaurant for 18 hours. Let's go to Fantasy Flight Games! So it's it's really nice. Uh, so if you ever are in the neck of the woods, I, I definitely suggest checking it out, because it's really cool. And It gives me a nostalgic pang for the old game center from Wizards oh, yeah? of the Coast in Seattle. Yeah, it, was, it sounds like this one's cooler, but uh, the Game Center was a, a big... It wasn't even called the Game okay. Center. It had a different name, but uh, had a restaurant next to it, and it was full of games, and you could rent a, a wonderful uh, abs- uh, ultimate okay. DM's table to run a game. It, it was a lot of fun. It was too expensive to run, especially in that part of the city, but uh, while it lasted, it was, a, it was a great deal of fun. And I find lately, especially in this very nerdy town of Edmonton, We've got a lot of game cafes where you go in and order a sandwich and a beer, and you pay, you know, two dollars or four dollars to sit at the table and play whatever game okay. you want to off of the nice. shelf. Yeah, my wife works at the. We usually call it quote local gaming store, but it's it's a gaming store and a comic book store, and I think it sells the most comic books in the United. Like, when it comes to like free comic book day, they get like. I don't want to say an actual number, but I want to say it's like double what any other comic book store gets for free comic book day because they just they're that big and well known, and uh, 
And they also wow. have a like a game table area and gaming area. And my wife is in charge of one of the people in charge of board game night, which is like the second Saturday of every month, where just it's board games. Families can come in. We we bring you know ten or fifteen of our hundreds of board games we own. One of the other guys he'll bring his, and we'll set it out on the table, and people can play whatever they want. And it's really nice because you get to go in, and if you're thinking about playing a board game, you just if hopefully someone brought it and then you just get to play it or if you want to play test a game like I've got a card game that I've been play testing for the last year off and on and so sometimes I'll bring that in and see if anybody wants to play it just to kind of test things out when it comes to board games what do you what are your some of your big board games well I've almost finished painting Shadows of Brimstone and we've tried it once and liked it but we haven't gotten deep enough into it that we feel okay. that we understand the rules properly I'm a big fan of Mansions of Madness mm-hmm. and Arkham Horror, and I recently traded for a copy of uh, Eldritch Horror, so I'm looking I like forward Eldr- to trying that. I like Arkham Horror, but uh, Eldritch Horror is nice because it doesn't take forever, and it's essentially kind of the same. It's just a quicker, more more broke, you know, more broken-down version. What appeals to me about Eldritch Horror is that it's globetrotting. I love going mm. all the way across the world. It reminds me of some of my favorite uh, Call of Cthulhu scenarios, I if, if you're going to stay in the same little town, it just doesn't, doesn't okay. feel like a campaign to me. But if you get on a, a Zeppelin or a ship, then I think you're really having Take a, a little trip over uh, to the mountains. Adventure. <laughs> yep. Anything else that stands out? Obviously, Pathfinder card game, I'm guessing you've played. We talked about it earlier. Yes, it's a good game. We really like that. Um, we especially like to play it with the miniatures that represent the characters. Because yeah, I, I've been, I keep talking about that. We want to. We one of our friends. He has. He bought all the little packs that have the characters in them that get the special cards, and he brought the cards. Right. We don't have the minis, and I was like, you should bring all the minis because we actually have like a. I think it's supposed to be for holding. I don't know some like little knickknacks, and it's like a little thing with a bunch of little square boxes in it that you hang on the walls and you put your knickknacks in each little individual square. Yeah. Right. And shadow I, boxes. Uh, and I I got one at the thrift store for like a dollar and restained it and put it up and we we got like 50 minis in there so now instead of like digging through a box or a tray to find a mini that suits you we just been like we, well I forgot to bring my mini again I'm like well there's the rack go pick it out whereas before it's like you want to find one for me find it yourself <laughs> I used to have that set up when I was in my 20s but uh, the miniatures kept multiplying and now they need yeah we pretty shots. much only put out the ones that are like very unique and special and we only have a handful of like pewter ones that we painted ourselves and so most of them are like the the D&D plastic minis or the Pathfinder battles mini miniatures stuff like that yeah, yeah I really was when they first started doing the pre-painted plastic minis I was I was really stoked because we could play with minis and it was at that time where 35 was back to having like a little board on the map and strategic battle mat type combats, which I really kind of like to be able to get a visual because the guy that's like, no, I'm too far away for him to attack. Well, what do you mean? You were right next to him two rounds ago. Well, there's no way of proving it or, you know, whatever, stuff like that. So having the little visual to know how far away you are and not forgetting and all that was was very nice. And I ended up with uh, one of the minis. Is He's kind of like my random world traveler himself is the Artemis Entrari miniature because he's been he's been lost oh yeah I don't know how many times and oh that's good. yeah and he somehow somebody he keeps like well one time he got lost and I think somebody swiped him at a at a public like game thing that I did 
forever ago, and I think somebody swiped him because he was worth like at the time he was worth like twenty five dollars. And so my mom went on eBay, and she was when I grew up, she was like, "You can't play D and D; it's evil." That whole that whole genre of time frame. And that's uh, too bad. Yeah. And at that finally at that point in time, she's like, "Listen, you haven't summoned the devil, so it's you can't be all that bad." And she realized, you know, like my math skills improved, and my reading and writing improved, and all of the good things that come with learning to role play uh, were really good. You know, arts and crafts and imagination type stuff. And so she went and bought me the new mini off of eBay for $25 plus $5 shipping and handling. So, like, she spent 30 bucks on this little piece of plastic. She didn't understand it, but she knew it meant a lot to me because that's, you know, that's like nice you said, gift. that's the kind of character I like to play. And that's the perfect mini whenever you want to play a rogue-type character and you need a mini. There's not too many uh, good, you know, pre-built plastic rogue minis that are just super awesome. And then the latest one, the other co-host of the show... It disappeared when I was in the in town, uh, like a hundred some miles out of town, where from where I lived, and I played with them, and then it disappeared after that. And I was like, check your stuff to see if you have it. And for God, I swear, eight years, maybe nine years, every year I asked him to look, and he's like, I looked, I can't find it. I looked, I can't find it. And then one day we sit down, and I'm at his house, and we're gonna play something. This is after I moved moved here. I go. He goes, you need a mini. I'm like, I need a roguish one. He pours out his little box of minis, like a little, not even a shoebox size, smaller than that, of miniatures on the table. And the one fell like two inches closer to me than all the other ones and literally stood up. And it was my (laughs) mini. And I was like, I picked it up and I yelled at him. I was like, are you serious? Are you serious? Are you kidding me? And he's like, what? What? I'm like, this is the mini that you haven't had for nine years that you keep looking for out of these 30 miniatures that you own. How do you not see it? And it's, yeah, I do. And now it sits on my shelf in, you know, a really good spot, and it's I'm never taking it anywhere else again. So if it gets lost, then it's <laughs> definitely my fault. Or the dogs, I guess. I guess they could eat it. So Well, I appreciate your time. Hopefully you had a decent time, and don't walk away and go, I, I hate those guys. Thanks for inviting me. It was fun. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad to have you on here, and uh, hopefully in the future we can have you come back and maybe do a, do some other stuff. I, I'm I'm really interested in getting a, a couple different people together and just covering some, like doing one of our regular episodes where we talk talk gaming or we pick a couple subjects and we kind of discuss yeah, it. Round tables like can that. be fun. So, um, yeah, so if you're interested in the future, I'll, I'll put you on the list and uh, see who I can get together and, and do a regular episode with a couple different people. And I think that would be sure, a lot of fun Sure, keep me in mind. I will definitely do that. Well, you take care, sir, and have a good one. And to all the people listening... That was David Gross, and it was awesome. Well, there you are. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. And I do hope that you come back and join us again for Epic Realms. (laughs) 